Thank you. That's, I'm afraid that they have time for Okay, we will leave Jens Stoltenberg there, the NATO Secretary General, repeating much of what he said over the past couple of days and endorsement of NATO allies of this new strategic concept that really does put Russia front and foremost as the most significant direct threat to security. Of course, it mentions China for the first time. Also interesting to hear him talk about their representation in air, sea, land and cyber, of course, acknowledging in their new plans ahead that cybersecurity threats are a paramount. And we've seen that certainly in the war in Ukraine. They talked about, he talked about the comprehensive package for Ukraine, meaning more weaponry, that NATO's commitment is unshakable. And they've seen this mental shift. He also talked about the ramping up of forces well over. He talked about 300,000 forces standing at the ready, the responsibility to this new security reality, the positioning, pre-positioning of equipment, also having forces assigned to specific allies for the first time since the Cold War II and this idea that the spending commitment, that 2% of GDP is now being seen as a flaw. They've obviously spent, as you said this week already, $350 billion in terms of provision of weaponry and support more than was initially planned back in 2014. Clarissa Ward joins us now. Clarissa, much to discuss on this in terms of the repositioning of what NATO represents. But I think the big thing today and the big achievement for NATO is the dropping of the uh, veto by Turkey, allowing Finland and Sweden now to become a member. And it's just a matter of time, the ratification in 30 governments around the world now in order to get them to join, huge for Russia in particular. Absolutely. And, you know, you heard President Biden earlier today, Julia, saying that President Putin, when he launched his invasion into Ukraine, was calling for the Finlandization uh, of countries around Russia. And instead, what he's getting is the NATOization. Uh, that border between Russia and Finland, some 800 miles long. So this is significant. Now, President Putin in the past has said that, uh, you know, that they don't view it as a real security threat, that Finland and Sweden will now be joining NATO, although he did add the caveat that if any weaponry was moved to either of those countries, that it would become a, 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 an issue which would need a, a very deliberate response. But make no bones about it. President Putin wanted to rewrite the conventional post-Cold War European security agreement. And what we are seeing today is that he has done that, although he has not done it in the way in which he perhaps would have liked to, or certainly in the way that he said he would have wanted to. And you only need to look at this new uh, strategic concept, this NATO doctrine, which has changed enormously uh, from the last one, which was penned in 2010, which described Russia uh, as a potential strategic partner, and which now, in its newest incarnation, calls Russia the greatest threat to NATO allies. It does go on to say, importantly, Julia, though, that NATO does not seek any confrontation with Russia, nor does it pose any meaningful threat to Russia. But you can imagine that President Putin is watching this summit playing out and is certainly somewhat concerned uh, by what he is seeing. It's fascinating, isn't it, as you point out with Finland, that 830-mile border with Russia. And obviously the Secretary General was asked about permanent bases in Finland and Sweden. And he uh, sort of avoided the, uh, the question and said, look, the door's open. The message here is the door is open. And, and Putin didn't succeed in closing that door. And in fact, the opposite. One of the other things uh, he was asked about, and I want to get your perspective on, was Zelensky, President Zelensky's address. And, and the comment that he made was, has Ukraine not paid enough? 
for NATO entry mm. and that was a, it was a question posed of course directly in that press conference and, and the inference being look more support is great but, but obviously NATO entry would make such a huge and significant difference in this war. Absolutely. And earlier we did hear uh, Stoltenberg reaffirming NATO's open door policy, but there is a sort of unsaid understanding that it would be unfeasible at this stage uh, for Ukraine to join, uh, to join the alliance. You can see uh, the desperation there when you hear Zelensky's impassioned plea. What does it take for us to be able to, to join NATO? Because for Ukraine, this is an issue not just of help us support, uh, you know, the sort of violation of a sovereign nation, but it's also about we are protecting you from possible further aggressions pushing further into Europe from Russia. At the same time, I don't think anybody here expects uh, for Ukraine to be put on any kind of a fast track to join NATO. And Ukraine understands that notwithstanding the formidable display of support both in terms of morale and in terms of weaponry and in terms of financial support, that Ukraine is facing a very serious challenge in the east, particularly in the Donbass region, as this war goes on. Russia has got a certain degree of momentum on its side. It has been making significant gains. They've been slow. They've been incremental. They've been plotting. There has been a large uh, rate of attrition, if you like. Um, but at the same time, there's an understanding more broadly that even if some kind of a ceasefire agreement was made, if, if Ukraine was willing to concede some territory, the fear is that Russia would just simply hit the pause button for a while, reconstitute, regroup before continuing, uh, essentially, um, potentially further into Ukraine and potentially even elsewhere. So you can understand why President Zelensky feels that frustration and feels that this is the pivotal moment. He understands that it's going to get more challenging as the months go on to keep all his allies and supporters on side with rising energy prices and also rising food prices and all many of these leaders facing political challenges at home, Julia. Mm. Even as the Secretary General says their commitment is unshakable and I quote the tragedy here is the Ukraine war is the catalyst for increasing, bolstering the security arrangements for NATO members but Ukraine on the other side paying a terribly heavy price. Clarissa Ward, thank you for joining us. Great to get you on. Okay, as Clarissa was saying, to the deadly Russian strike now on a shopping mall in Ukraine and new video showing the moment a Russian missile struck. According to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, at least 18 civilians are known to have died. CNN cannot independently verify this footage, but the shopping mall has been destroyed and you are seeing images of what remains there. CNN's Scott McLean has the latest from Kyiv and, and Scott devastating images of this attack. Yeah, and you know, those pictures where you see the actual strike is absolutely stunning to watch, stunning and terrifying to watch. And uh, it is not surprising then when you see the pictures of the aftermath where my colleague Sam Salma Abdelaziz is right now and you see this shopping mall, which is really just a shell of its former self, if you can even call it that. It is literally just a pile of twisted metal where you have 300 
workers going through it, trying to dismantle that mall, trying to make it safe, also looking for bodies. As you mentioned, 18 people killed, 54 hospitalized. We are told most of them serious. And what we've also learned, though, is that 11 body parts have also been found during this search operation. What they need to figure out now is how many bodies those 11 body parts actually belong to. This job of dismantling this area is also quite dangerous. Two or three of the workers have actually been hospitalized from falling debris because they've been sort of picking through this area because it is so, so unstable at this stage of the game. And so um, it is not a pretty sight by any stretch of the imagination. The Russians claim, though, that they were actually aiming at a cache of weapons that was stored nearby, foreign weapons, and this was a legitimate military target, and the mall was only sort of collateral damage. The Ukrainians obviously see this very differently. They say that the mall, they must have known that this was an intentional target, and as for what was next door, they say that it was a, a facility for manufacturing and storing parts um, to go toward machines that repair the roads. Totally uh, normal civilian uh, tasks only, no military purposes at all. You can think, though, just for a second, Julia, that this missile that we're talking about that struck was capable of carrying a 1,000 kilogram payload, absolutely massive. And there were 1,000, we're told by the president, people inside that mall before those air raid sirens went off. So thankfully, the vast majority of people, it seems, managed to get to safety, but obviously some didn't. And at this point, those workers who are picking through that rubble, this is a recovery operation. They do not expect to find anyone still alive. And a miracle that more lives weren't lost, to your point. Scott McLean there. Thank you. Now back to NATO and a REM meeting on the sidelines. President Biden in three-way talks with Japan's Prime Minister and the President of South Korea on Wednesday. It's the first time a NATO summit has included representatives from Indo-Pacific nations as the alliance seeks to counter China's influence. Selena Wang joins us on this. Uh, China's long worried, Selena, about a NATO-style alliance in the Asia-Pacific region, something, of course, that the United States has denied. But at a time when China is specifically being pointed at in terms of the strategic concerns of NATO going forward, you'd expect at the very least disquiet in Beijing. What do they have to say about this? Well, Julia, no surprise, but this all makes Beijing feel more uneasy and threatened. Mm. They are not pleased to see the presence, this historic presence of countries like Japan and South Korea at this NATO summit. And they've had some very harsh words in state media criticizing this for creating this Cold War environment. And I want to read to you this statement from China's foreign ministry saying, quote, China pursues an independent foreign policy of peace. How could China be labeled a systemic challenge? We solemnly urge NATO to immediately stop spreading false and provocative statements about China. NATO should, quote, stop seeking to disrupt Asia and the whole world after it has disrupted Europe. Now, the foreign ministry there referring to the expectation that NATO is going to, for the first time, label China as a systemic challenge in its policy guidelines for the coming decade. This this harsher language from NATO, the harsher language from G7, the Quad Alliance, as well as the broadening support the Biden administration is making with allies in Asia, all of that is making China feel like, well, the U.S. is trying to suppress its rise. It is trying to contain China. This is despite the U.S. repeatedly saying that it is not trying to start a new Cold War. It is not trying to create an Asian NATO. It is not trying to create these hostile regional blocs. 
But the new geopolitical reality is that China is increasingly joining hands with Russia in opposition to the West. China has repeatedly refused to denounce and condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In fact, they recently called each other in a no-limits partnership between China and Russia. So despite these harsh critical words from China, they are feeling uneasy, as I said, and threatened. But there is, however, a limit to how far these Asian members want to go who are in attendance at NATO. They are still walking a fine line here because China, for these countries, is a key trading partner. And they do not want to antagonize Beijing too much because China has before and could again in the future use that trading relationship to inflict economic pain. And even among the NATO member country, there is some disagreement about how China should be handled. Some of them think that the focus should squarely be on Russia and that China falls outside of their security priorities. But what is very evident here is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this new geopolitical landscape, that it is creating a greater sense of urgency for these democratic allies that they need to more effectively coordinate, not only against the threat from Russia, but also from China. Julia? Brilliant analysis. And I agree. Uh, But I don't think you can have the conversation about Russia without trying in some way to include China, given their influence. Energy alone, never mind anything else. A diplomatic dance and a very delicate one at that. Selena Wang, thank you. Okay, straight ahead on First Move, gas or EV, you decide as Citroen CEO gives us his roadmap on an all-electric future, or not, and some digital education, a blending of the physical and the digital in the world of collectible toys with Singapore's Mighty Jacks. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and turning now to the investigation into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and to a key question about that day. Did Donald Trump and those closest to him know that the crowd that they had assembled might turn violent? On Tuesday, public testimony from a woman who worked in the White House just steps from the Oval Office left little doubt about the answer to that question. As CNN's Jessica Snyder has the details. That evening was the first moment that I remember feeling scared and nervous for what could happen on January 6th. And I had a deeper concern for what was happening with the planning aspects of it. Cassidy Hutchinson chronicling the days and hours leading up to the January 6th Capitol attack. The former senior aide to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows were calling a meeting between Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows on January 2nd. I remember looking at him saying, Rudy, could you explain what's, what's happening on the 6th? Uh, he, he had responded something to the effect of, we're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. I went back up to our office, and I found Mr. Meadows in his office on the couch. He was scrolling through his phone. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. The White House Counsel's Office was gravely concerned about then-President Donald Trump's speech and desire to march to the Capitol, according to Hutchinson. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. 
we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. As the rioters were storming the Capitol, Hutchinson testified Trump was cheering them on. Agreeing with the chance to, quote, hang Mike Pence. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. She says Cipollone replied, people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. Hutchinson testifying in the clearest detail to date about Trump's desire to lead the crowd to the Capitol, despite warnings that many present were armed. They had Glock-style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that subject, um, weapon on his right hip. Copy that, he's in the tree. Hutchinson recalled that before the president took the stage, he insisted that metal detectors be removed and individuals with weapons be allowed in to fill the crowd and eventually march to the Capitol. He was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Hutchinson said Trump took the stage thinking that Meadows was still figuring out a way for Trump to go to the Capitol after his speech. She added that Trump got into his SUV after his speech and was seen in this video presented by the committee driving away. Hutchinson recalling a conversation back at the White House with then-Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato about an alleged altercation in the SUV between Trump and his Secret Service agent Robert Engel when he learned that they would not be taking him to the Capitol. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. A Secret Service official familiar with the matter told CNN that Ornato denies telling Hutchinson that Trump grabbed the steering wheel or agent. The Secret Service notified the select committee after Hutchinson's testimony that the agents involved are prepared to testify under oath that the incident did not occur. The committee standing behind Hutchinson's account while encouraging others with information to come forward. Look, I believe Cassidy Hutchinson. I think she's a very, very smart, very capable, very honest individual. Uh, she has no incentive uh, to make up something that isn't true. Okay, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for U.S. stock markets at this moment. Futures are trying to move higher after a weak session Tuesday that saw the Nasdaq tumble some three percentage points. Investors are waiting to hear what the heads now of the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England have to say about their rate hike plans during a forum in Portugal. We'll call it a Portuguese powwow and that's taking place this hour. So we'll keep you abreast of any comments that get made there. Now, after the break, they were the first to bring independent suspension to mass-produced cars, as well as disc brakes and headlights that see around corners. So with a reputation for innovation, why is Citroen still launching cars with petrol engine capacity? Well, CEO is up next. Hilton Scoss.
happy smiles and fist pumps there over at the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. And actually, U.S. stocks little changed in early trying despite their enthusiasm. Oh, there we have popped around three tenths of one percent. So perhaps it is helping. It's a calmer picture, though, after yesterday's across the board sell off, as I mentioned just before the break, that saw the Nasdaq fall almost three percent. Over in Sintra, Fed Chair Jay Powell saying at a summit that the U.S. economy remains in strong shape and a soft landing remains possible. We do hope so. But new concern, of course, over the health of the U.S. consumer. Just take a look at this. No bed, no bath, just the beyond for the CEO of Bed Bath and Beyond. The turnaround specialist Mark Tritton being shown the door after dismal first quarter results, with sales plunging some 25 percent. Shares uh, plunging, as you can see, actually now we're down around 18 percent in early trade. Okay, to EV or not to EV, Citroen, the French automaker, is hedging its bets, offering electric and combustion engines in two new models. The all-electric EC4X is launching today alongside the regular C4X, which comes with petrol and diesel drivetrains. The upside, combustion engines offer more range, but engines and transmissions gobble up space and weight, of course, too. Citroen's brand heritage dates back to the 1930s with a reputation for innovation and quirky design. Let's not forget they came up with the 2CV and the DX. Whether that image will be maintained under its parent Stellantis, well, we can find out. Vincent Covey is the CEO and he joins us now. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Lots of questions. Hi, lots of questions in that introduction. Um, Talk to us about your latest releases. What do we need to understand? What differentiates these cars in this segment in particular? And can you give us a sense of the price? Vincent, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, good. I was worried that I'd lost you there. Talk to us about your latest releases. What do we need to understand? You lost me, but I'm back. I'm very glad you're back. This is the joy of live TV. Um, Talk to me about your latest (laughs) releases. (laughs) And can you give me a sense of the price and what differentiates them? So I'm connecting with you from Istanbul, Turkey. We just had a, the launch of a new vehicle under the Citroen brand. It's called the C4X. That vehicle is basically targeting a variety of needs from 100% electric mobility, both personal and professional in the northern part of Europe. We launch it as a 100% electric solution in 14 countries in the northern part of Europe, all the way to here in Turkey, where this vehicle is sitting at 4.6 meter long, providing comfort, modernity, space will be a highly aspirational status vehicle for the up and coming classes. So that car is a very strong vehicle for Citroën to both accelerate electrification in Europe, but also expand geographically around the Mediterranean Sea and across the Middle East and Africa in particular. Makes perfect sense to me. Can you give me a sense of the price? Even just a hint. <laughs> Today, let's be clear, we already have a C4. The C4X will complement the effort, being closer to being longer, providing a very substantial boot, being more status oriented and comfortable. So if you start from the C4 vehicle, currently it's on sale. The price varies depending on countries between let's say 25, 26,000 euros as an entry version all the way to 37 for the fully electric version. The C4X, slightly bigger, 
more functional vehicle will be priced marginally above a C4. So that gives a window for you. It will come in gasoline and diesel for a number of markets, 100% electric for most markets and exclusively electric in some markets. You know, what fascinates me, and it cuts to exactly what you're saying there, is where you stand on this EV versus combustion engine split in the future. I mean, the model that the parent company Stellantis and therefore you guys are are following is that you'll create a, a model of a car and it can have a combustion engine or it can have an EV engine. The problem is for an EV buyer that you're creating a lot of space for an engine that ultimately isn't put in the car, they've got a battery in there. So you're giving up a lot of the benefits just in terms of space and capacity that you would get in an EV. Does that work for the future? Is this you on the fence over what direction we go in or just providing optionality? You know, I think the the word you're using of optionality is very much correct. We, We need to be realistic. Today, we're in a transition phase. So some countries in Europe, let's take Norway, Sweden, they're already 90% electric, 100% electric vehicles as new car sales. If you move to Southern Europe, the percentage we're talking about might be 10, 15%. If you're talking to countries in the Southern side of the Mediterranean, we're talking maybe one or 2%. So what we want to do is be there to accompany this transition. The story will be different 10 years down the road, but today we need to be there to accompany the transition. Ready for electrification market, we sell the vehicles as 100% electric and honestly, it's exactly the same vehicle C4X. Same styling, same roominess, same dynamic performance, same modernity of equipment. In countries that are entering an accelerated phase of of transition, let's take France, Spain, Italy, we'll we'll sell the vehicle both in combustion engine and electric. And in the next years, you will see the 100% electric percentage grow. And maybe at one point, maybe three, four years down the road, we'll stop selling combustion engines. In a country like Turkey, where I'm sitting today, sales of electric vehicles might be only 5% of a volume. But we will still make the offer because this is a never-turn-back type of transition. Once you've tried it, you stay electric. So we'll conquer customers one by one. We'll reassure, provide solution. And once the customers have adopted, it will grow. Five years down the road, it might be 30%. Mm. And the next generation will be then fully electric. As you see, we have a responsibility as a car maker to remove hurdles to the transition, accompany the societal expectation for a sustainable world. Yeah, and in the interim, you need to be all to everyone. I guess that's the vision. I mean, I see under Stellantis, but even by 2030, you're saying, look, Europe's going to be 100% EV. The United States is going to be 50%. So even in these considered developed markets, it's um, the split and the difference is huge. What about India? Very quickly, because I know you see this as a, as a growth market too. What do you see as the split even over the next five years in terms of what you're providing there, combustion versus EV, out of interest? So... Yeah, the point you're raising about India is particularly interesting. As you know, first, um, Citroen is shifting gears in India. We've been selling C5 aircraft for quite some time. We are starting production of a new C3 today or tomorrow, exactly as we speak. We'll be launching, uh, starting sales of a new C3 in a month. And we've already said that this new C3, which starts with combustion engine, will have a fully electric option from the early days of 23. So we are starting this flywheel of electrification. Why would India move towards electrification? For these two reasons. One, 
regulatory. There is a corporate average fuel consumption regulation in India which will force every car manufacturer to offer fully electric solution and we will be joining that group. But another one is cost and efficiency. Because in every market around the world, especially when gasoline prices are going through the roof, we will all discover progressively that fully electric vehicles are not only quiet, without vibration, extremely pleasant to drive, capable to be charged in your house, but also they can be economically relevant. Mm. And that's what we're aiming to do in India. And you, we might be surprised in the years to come by the speed at which at least some segments, some customers in India are switching towards electrification. We shall see very quickly because I have one minute left before I start getting shouted at. And that happens a lot on this show. Um, the Ami, the beach buggy, uh, 50 units were available. You sold out in less than 18 minutes, I believe. And then it spewed a, a PR campaign where you were talking directly to Elon Musk saying, sorry, Elon, the only way to get one is to buy us. You will surely be on Mars before you get one. So I have two questions. One, is Citroen up for sale? And two, why does Elon Musk need an Ami? <laughs> you, you know, can ask the first question one first. of the beauty of running <laughs> Citroen is that it's a very creative brand. It has a lot of freedom. So let's say we enjoyed ourselves. We showed the Ami as a concept for buggy maybe six, seven months ago. And we said, hey, you know what? Let's go for it. So we were able to make 50. We sold them in 17 minutes. Wow. And we were very happy to tell the world, you know what? We have such a great and hot product that it goes, it flies off the shelf. Now, <laughs> We couldn't resist the idea of saying, you know, some things are so scarce and so in high demand that even the richest people on earth can't access it. So this was <laughs> a pun. We thought it was very much in the spirit of Citroen. And for sure, if we get more, we'll offer one to Elon. I was about to say, if he calls, I'm sure I know what's going to happen. <laughs> Vincent, great to chat to you. Come back soon, please. <laughs> Fun. The CEO of Citroen there. Thank you. All right, still to come. Let's get physical, or should I say digital? I speak to the CEO of the toy company bringing NFTs to life. We'll explain, don't worry, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Now, what started out as a love for collectible toys has grown into a multi-million dollar business connecting the physical with the digital and now with eyes on the Metaverse 2. Founded in 2012, Singapore-based Mighty Jacks designs digital, digital collectibles, real-world versions of digital creations. Each toy is embedded with an NFC chip that means the buyer can identify and authenticate the item, now with all the data stored on a blockchain. The company has partnered with brands including DC Comics, Hasbro, Disney and Nickelodeon, shipping millions of items to fans all across the world. And joining us now is Jackson Au. He's the founder and CEO of Mighty Jacks. Jackson, fantastic to have you on the show. I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to start. You grew up liking collectibles and you collected from around 17. Then you looked on YouTube on how to make things. Then you went to China and saw how toys were made and came back home and were like, I think I can do this. There's something here. Go from there. You borrowed money from your parents to do it. Yeah, so I've always been a collector my whole life. You know, I've been collecting art prints, the books that uh, of my favorite artists. And that really spurred me on to want to create something tangible, you know. So that's why I went down to, and figured out how things are made, came back and created our first product. 
Describe the moment, because it was a long road even to the point where you had a meeting with DC Comics and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll do this. And they sent you over a contract the next day and you were then creating for DC Comics. I mean, that's huge. That was that was an amazing journey. Um, we couldn't quite get the contract in place and, and we had to go down to Burbank in person meet with the head of Global Toys and really just shook on it up. And that was uh, really a leap of faith from both sides. And, and I'm just glad that that opportunity was given to us. It was a dream come true to work with DC Comics. I mean, that was in 2015. And I think that really was the beginning of the huge acceleration. Let's take a step back and just explain to our audience the connection between the physical toys that we're talking about, the, the digital imprint that they have with this chip that allows verification and authentication, which I think is so important when you're talking about collectibles. And then you can tie that to blockchain technology and what that means today, because that's relatively new. I mean, that was 2018 and you were still going, what the heck is blockchain, which most of us are doing today. So just connect <laughs> digital, physical, and then we'll push it onto uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, yes, you know, in 2018, blockchain was introduced to us. Uh, you know, our advisors were saying that this is the, one of the best use case for blockchain on a consumer front because for collectibles, they often appreciate in value in the secondary marketplace. So we have to authenticate uh, whether it's real or not, right? So then we did that. We created a patent pending process where the chip was placed inside the product. And we allow users uh, to register the provenance of it, and, and that is on the chain. And so that creates a, a really a long line of uh, ownership transference as the item uh, move on from one owner to the other. So one of those uh, projects that we, we work on is something like this. This is a Tiny Tina. Wonderlands is a AAA game from uh, Gearbox and 2K. So with this chip inside, it actually delivers uh, the code that you require to play the game. So that's how that's one of the way that it works. Oh, so that's sort of integrating a physical item with the digital world. That sort of takes us beyond non-fungible tokens and that takes us perhaps into into the metaverse too. But I, I just want to take a step back. Who's buying that, Jackson? Who who is your buyer? Who is your well, consumer? I would say basically people who have not really grown up <laughs> and, and these are these are big kids. Pop culture. <laughs> pop culture. Uh, elements that we grew up with, right? And now that we have, uh, you know, certain disposable income to spend on things that we really love, then perhaps we can't get it when we was a kid, uh, i.e. in point, like a person like me, then we would go on and, and buy collectibles to enrich our life and our surroundings, right? Like that's, I think that's quite common to, to, to want to have something that reminds you of a time that is simpler. And so what we create, uh, we do it for collectors and, and people who love things, who has passion. I like your point about reminding of times that were simpler. Um, okay, so tie this to NFTs, non-fungible tokens, because we've talked about this on the show and this idea of whatever it is, but it, a piece of digital art, for example, enshrining the data on the blockchain, whether it's onward sales or even just allowing authentication is a critical part of that. Tie this to NFTs and then you can push it forward to, to what role and what part you see Mighty Jacks playing in the metaverse. Every piece that we work on, every product that we work on, 
it's to enrich the collector's experience, right? So from end-to-end, digital to physical to digital, that's what we're trying to create uh, for the whole journey as a fan experience. So when we started doing NFT sometime late 2020, I would say, it's already part of our process because we have to create the digital uh, version of it before it goes into a a physical manifestation, right? right? So when we introduce that, as the initial product, a digital asset or content that the consumers and collectors could have at first, then we begin to create exclusive items that they could then have the opportunity of uh, procuring. And and so from the digital asset, it goes to the physical asset. And thereafter, the the physical product like this would then uh, release even more content that is related to the IP uh, or the games or, or, or sports uh, IPs that you love. And that's how that's how it really we would do the whole chain. And then that is available in the metaverse, the offshoots of what you've gone from digital to physical and then sort of back to digital in a way. I get it. Jackson, you're clearly doing something that you love. Are you profitable? Are you making money? So hey, this is this is the billion <laughs> early dollar days. question. Um, we we have always been profitable since uh, you know the early days of 15, 16, wow. 17, 18. Um, the reason why because we never took outside money or ex- venture money until uh, 2017, 2018. And I want to create a company and a business that has longevity. I want to do it the right way, if 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 I could put it yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah, um, the only money you took was from your parents. They must be very proud. What do they say about it? So and have you paid them my back? Parents, we came from. <laughs> wait, <laughs> I, I did pay them back with okay, interest. Okay, good. So, Just checking. Know, that's, that's good. <laughs> but you know, they we come from an average family, so the the, right. the money was actually from maxing out my parents' uh, credit cards because I don't have credit score, <laughs> and that's how <laughs> that how that's how it came to be. Um, but I, I think for them, it's really. You know, I'm a I'm a guy that uh, couldn't quite get it right academically. You know, and and because of that, I think I must have set the bar pretty low. And so when I say that, okay, we're gonna do a toy company, we're gonna do a collectible company, they were like, okay, that sounds reasonable enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, your humility is incredibly refreshing in a in a founder that's built a business like this. Uh, Jackson, we're gonna keep in contact. I think you're gonna be my expert now in uh, in NFTs and. <laughs> Digital, physical, digital um, translation. Great to have you with us. Jackson Au there, founder and CEO of Mighty Jacks. Thank you. Okay, coming up, Tesla CEO Elon Musk taking the wheels of his driverless car unit as hiring hits a speed bump. That story next. Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk proving once again that Tesla's hiring is not on autopilot. Reports say the company is laying off some 200 people in its driverless car division. Autonomous, perhaps not synonymous with runaway spending anymore. Paul Monica joins me. Paul, I don't think there's any message here about their commitment to driverless technology. They've shifted a lot of employees, I believe, already to um, Palo Alto, to New York, Buffalo in particular. And they've said they're going to cut 10 percent of the salaried workforce and bump up hourly salaried uh, hourly workers is that the message the real takeaway from this pruning yeah yeah i think the message julia is that clearly tesla like most industrial uh companies right now they're worried about where the economy is headed and we've seen elon musk uh, have these uh, concerns talking about the super bad feeling that he has about the economy warning of a potential recession tesla already saying to uh, many of its employees that they need to be showing up 
in the office or they're going to assume that they have been, uh, you know, that they're not going to be coming back to work. And I think that right now there are clear indications that demand might be falling for luxury goods like pricey electric vehicles in the wake of all these worries about inflation and a possible global economic slowdown, maybe even a recession. So not a huge surprise to see Tesla making these reported job cuts. And it's unfortunate that, you know, not all of those workers in San Mateo, California will be able to make the move to Palo Alto or Buffalo, which is obviously a much further trip from Silicon Valley. Yes. Very, um, very tough for them. And the suggestion was as well that they hadn't realized as well that they, they were potentially on the line here, which is um, always, always sad to hear for any worker, I think, in these uh, in these moments and these economic times. Paul, while I've got you, any news on Twitter? What's that? Oh, oh with Musk and Twitter? Yeah. It is interesting. He has been silent on Twitter for the past few days. And I think that's led to speculation that maybe he is in a sort of quiet period on Twitter as he tries <laughs> to figure out what the next move is going to be. Twitter obviously wants to buy at, that buyout at 54.20 a share, but I think Elon Musk, if he uh, you know can prove that he is the world's richest person and is a savvy wealth uh, manager, he's going to try and I think knock that price down because it doesn't look like in the face of this market and this economy that Twitter at 54.20 makes a lot of sense. Yes. Either that or he was just preparing for a monster birthday party for the last week. Paul and Monica, thank you for that. I'm joking. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.